0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do.
1: In this episode, repeat guest and co-editor-in-chief of CJS, Dr. Ed Harvey, joins us to discuss innovation. Innovation is one of those buzzwords that everyone loves to use, but rarely do we actually think about what it means to do innovative work and how we might be more innovative. Dr. Harvey is an orthopedic surgeon at McGill University in Montreal and is involved in several startups developing new devices. We'd love to hear your thoughts. What makes someone innovative? What can we do to create environments that encourage innovation? Send us an email at podcast.cjs and gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge.
0: Dr. Harvey, Surge. Dr. Harvey I, I wondered, you know, when I when I look up innovation in, in the classic dictionary, there's there's essentially two definitions. One is a new idea, method, or device, and the other is an introduction of something new. So we're curious h- how you define innovation in general, and in particular, this is integrated into surgical care and the surgical setting as a whole?
2: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question because depending on who you talk to innovation means a different thing and it's become quite a buzzword. So over the last two years I think innovation has been used differently and probably wrongly by many of the people that are using it. A lot of the universities have innovation programs in every single one of the departments including uh, sociology and Probably the way innovation is generally, was started to be defined was that it's a disruptive technology which brings about change, I think is the best way to look at it. And to drill down like disruptive is defined differently as well, but it's something that absolutely changes what we were doing before. And it's really driven by technology in science, right? So something comes along, whether it's a new way of communicating wirelessly or it's a new way to sense things, or it's a new way to study things. uh, And it changes drastically what we're doing before. That's your goal with innovation. Now, innovation isn't always that. Innovation is sometimes just incremental invention, and that's not a bad thing. Um, Invention, though, is just a small part of innovation. You know, you can come up with something that's new and wonderful, and it's not necessarily innovative, but it's still patentable and and still commercialized. You can still commercialize it, but it might not be strictly seen as being innovative and supplying a disruptive process. So for me, <clears throat> that's what innovation is. Now, I don't think that's either definition. You just read to me. So maybe my de- definition is yet to be proven. But if you think of it that way, uh, then you get a lot more excited about innovation.
1: I think it is actually important to talk about the word innovation because I feel like sometimes it uh, the word actually prevents people from thinking creatively, like, you know, if you ever tell someone to think out of the box and suddenly like there are no more ideas and you really actually can't even think of, of anything new to do. Uh, so I wonder if having the, the term innovate, innovation as a moniker for, for a lot of the stuff that you do actually holds you back. Like, can you, ever, can you comment on just the word innovation and if that ever actually kind of holds you back? Do you feel, do you feel like being labeled as an innovative person actually sometimes makes it stressful to do new things?
2: <laughs> yeah yeah, I don't really like to be called an innovator, but you know i I hold I guess multiple patents and I've got multiple startups. I don't know what kind of disclosure we need to uh, discuss for the podcast, but I, I let's let's just I'll get a disclosure in the way if I just talk about anything I'm involved in. I'm currently involved or co-founder of three startups, uh, Nexense, which is a microelectronics uh, company, Mile One which is developing biomedical devices. We have a new device for acute compartment syndrome, which is on market right now. And uh, Stethera, which is a timing company, uh, as well as another couple coming. And I have a ton of funding, which I don't wanna be seen as pushing something I don't wanna, I don't, on a mission, hidden mission. So I have a ton of funding, but most of it's from peer review grants. I do have funding from the Department of Defense, CIHR, NSERC. NRF, Investment Quebec, et cetera, but nothing corporate except for the stuff I'm founding. So I just wanna get that out of the way in case I accidentally am seen as pushing something. Um, So innovation, um, people smarter than me have thought about innovation and depending whether you're a a loop, a lumper or or a splitter, uh, innovation's sort of in four processes. There's a financial uh an internal process uh improvement an offering improvement which is what we usually do in, in medicine and delivery and that might seem like kind of oh what are those what how is innovation in those so like on the financial side you can change a business model so like dell changed the business model for computer sales to being online and no one had done that before uh in process uh GE changed the way or innovated the way that uh, core economics were done in companies, right? So they basically holding company where they get rid of people that don't perform well. And that was an innovative process in order to increase their value on the offering side. We do that in surgery all the time, new knife, new plate, uh, whatever. uh, That's kind of what you do. You have new product or new product performance improvement and then delivery. So how you deliver things. I mean, Apple delivered music, not first, but best over long, over the internet, right? So things like that and how you brand, you know, Virgin was branded their planes, music, records, all in one big package that make it seem more desirable. So those are the four main ways that innovation's grouped. And if you think of it that way, you can actually quantify it, right? It's not just a kind of a nebulous word, innovation. But I think for most people in the audience, innovation is really what I said, it's a product performance or a product system improvement. Uh, like you, you have a, a robot for doing surgery or you invent the gamma knife or you have new implants that you can use. And, and it's the thing we get our heads around, things we see every day that we'd like to innovate. Unfortunately, it's also the easiest innovation step to copy because there's if you thought of it and can do it, then the barrier to entry is not really high. So even in a really lucrative market, it's sort of a race to parity. You come out with a blue plate, someone else comes out with a pink plate, someone else has a purple plate, and you're all racing to sell it to people that are colorblind, right? So innovation is is way bigger than we see in medicine, but the the things we see the most are those really kind of easier steps to market. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things you highlighted there was just the idea that innovation isn't necessarily like a new, a new tool or a new toy, uh, which is, I think, what a lot of surgeons kind of think of. Can can you give an example of some innovation that is present in in the sort of the surgical world that wasn't necessarily a technical innovation, but uh, either an educational or or a clinical uh, innovation, uh, or like a process innovation, like you talked about?
2: Sure. So, like on the front end of a process innovation, the Mayo Clinic. Uh, took a different bent on their approach to uh, breast breast surgery. So usually people were doing, and Chad might, I'm not a breast surgeon, obviously, but Chad might have more oversight over this than I do, uh, or insight. Uh, uh, they decided that they were going to own uh, a bigger market share in breast surgery. So they decided that instead of just doing a lumpectomy and having the patient go home, and then, you know, deciding whether the margins were adequate and what kind of markers were on it. They were just going to hold the patients in the operating room. And it didn't make sense to most people like the, because that's not really efficient use of operating room time. If you just have the person on the table for an extra 30 minutes, instead of doing 25 cases a day of lumpectomies, you're only going to do eight. And uh, so people said, we're not going to do that. But Mayo Clinic decided we're going to do that. And uh, they were able to not only uh, diagnose completely margins, do further surgery, and have one stage procedures, but then before the patient even left the Mayo Clinic, they knew the markers and they knew what adjuvant chemotherapy they were going to get. And therefore, the whole, for the patient, that was an innovative process. And that they went in, they were treated completely, in coming out, they knew what. Therapy they were getting as opposed to having to make three visits. And part of that was predicated by the fact that Mayo Clinic's in Rochester, Minnesota, and so in the middle of nowhere. But I think that's a good example of surgical innovation that isn't what we normally see.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great example. I I totally agree, Ed. Um, You know, I I don't know if it's accurate or not, and you may agree or disagree, but from the outside, it, it seems like by nature or by culture, orthopedic surgery and vascular surgery. At least in my traveling, are the two quote unquote most innovative groups, or certainly the groups that, that seem to be, um, have more of a bend on, on the innovation side as you've defined it. Do, do you think that's accurate? And, and if so, wh- why is that?
2: Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I'm not sh- I never really thought of it that way because, but maybe both of those specialties are extremely, uh, procedure and technique driven. And um, every day you're thinking, oh, I could do this better. I could do this better. And, and then you have to come up with a way to do it better. You can't just talk about it. Um, I know that in orthopedics, perhaps the arthroplasty group is not as innovation friendly, and they don't have to be. I mean, uh, I think 1986, we found that 36% boning growth into a prosthesis was good enough. And even though other techniques have come out for boning growth into prosthesis, we don't really need it. But if you look at the uh, trauma world where I am, um, when I was a resident, there was three plates, and now we have several thousand different uh, implants to put in, and that's all been from surgeon-driven innovation by and large. So I think you see other people improving your specialty, and it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to try to do it too. And I think that's happened in the vascular world with the endovascular procedures, and uh, coming into to vogue and the, the vascular surgeons have been very good at adapting to both doing open and minimally invasive surgery so i think it sort of is fitting yeah,
0: that's it i mean it's interesting the 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 culture and the sort of the the seed of innovation and, and and you're exactly right i think you look at some of the developments i mean the the endograph would be i guess the classic example and and mm-hmm you know, the individual, the Argentinian gent who, who came up with that and how he came up with that and how he pushed through that. And again, you know, I, it's interesting w- when you sit back and listen and, and watch these folks talk about these big disruptive leaps forward, um, cardiac transplantation with Christian would be another example. They tend to be uh, more often than not, it seems like they're in locations where, as, as you pointed out about Mayo, could sort of only happen in that space in that place at that time it seems to be a perfect um, sort of cauldron of, of factors that allow that to occur
2: yeah I agree but I think more and more people see that they can do it themselves and I think some of it goes back to innovation I mean most most of what we see come out of the OR is incremental improvement mm-hmm. and and not to be surprised not and but it's hard to get a patent. For a lot of these things, where you come to the patent agency and they go, "Well, it's just clever engineering. It's really not invention, and it's really not innovative." And you have to argue why it's innovative, and no one else could see it. But incremental innovation or incremental invention is still a good thing, you know. Like it's driven the car industry for the last two hundred years. I mean, you know, before you had a handbrake, now you have. Then you had footbrakes, then you had disc brakes, then you had some, uh, you know, headlights, then you had lane departure uh, technology, and and uh, they can tell you, and then now they steer you back in your lane if you're out of your lane. And, you know, the obvious incremental improvement comes towards self-driving cars. But when we get there, then that's actually disruptive. And this goes back to the definition of disruptive and, innov- and innovative. Like, like when I look at it, maybe I'm only one who sees it this way, but, but it'll become disruptive when you don't have a steering wheel. And you can actually do your work on the way to work, like do your paperwork on the way to work, and you can live. Uh, two and a half hours away because you have two, you know five hours of paperwork every day and you only need to be in a meeting for one hour. And so that becomes disruptive in that it's going to change the way cities are made, the way roads are made, the way people get to and from work, the way people communicate. and But just having a self-driving car where you have to sit behind the wheel and still steer it sometimes, that's not really disruptive, but it is it is innovative.
1: I want to circle back to something Dr. Ball was alluding to in that this whole idea that as certain innovations perhaps couldn't have happened unless they were in a certain uh, place or with certain kind of group of people. Malcolm Gladwell has written about this most famously in his books like Outliers, where he, he talks about you know the Beatles playing in this very unique situation in Hamburg where they're playing every night. And it's almost like to this point where, where now everybody knows about it. It's in the zeitgeist and it's almost passé to talk about innovation like that. But I'm curious from your perspective, as someone who's actively involved in in thinking about this, how important do you think culture and location and space uh, are to the process of being creative and and being innovative?
2: Uh, It's a great question. I think it's really important. I can just, I'll use an example from my own experience. You know, 20 years ago, I, I really didn't like the way that we treated trauma with acute compartment syndrome being a muscle condition. That gut, you know you have swelling in the fascial compartment and the muscle dies if you don't recognize it fast enough and finally I got up you know my nerve to actually go to lower Campus so I was in the perfect environment where I walked down to lower Campus and I said I need a sensor that'll tell me when muscle is dying and at that time microelectrical machine system technology just came on the academic radar and there was one person doing it at McGill and he had a sensor that he didn't know what to do with. And I said, oh, I can use that. And we should work together. And through through that kind of meshing, which would never have happened if I was working in a community hospital, if I was working somewhere besides uh, one of the big three hospitals or big three universities in Canada or or maybe 12 in North America at the time, uh, I would never have a sensor that was, you know, this miniature silicone chip, non-hysteresis, perfectly... Uh, accurate to within 0.01 millimeters mercury sensor that was driven by a very low amount of power and could communicate wirelessly. It just wouldn't have happened. And the fact that we were a med school and a lower campus next to each other and that happened to talk, it happened. Right. And so now we have this company that's selling devices across the world. Basically, you know, we're working on we're working on contracts in Europe and in the states and Canada as we speak. And that never would have happened. That, never, that innovation step never would have happened if I wasn't in the perfect spot. And if he was on vacation that week, I never would have met him. You know what I mean? So there is some happenstance. But um, I think that, that gap's closing a little bit as people realize that there is technology out there that you can use. And so people are more apt to communicate uh, uh, with other people, not like I did, like walking down and going office to office and asking what they're doing. But I think it's a lot more evident to engineering schools and other schools that they have to communicate with people outside in order to get translation of their inventions.
0: Uh, I think I think that's so well said, and it's so interesting to think about your example. You know, we have one of our general surgical trauma surgeons here that's cross-appointed to engineering. He he was a robotic engineer before medical school, and that's a great example of, of you know leverage and and, and support. I, I, I guess. The next question I'd like to ask you, or we would like to talk about is, how do you, how do you better or best maybe support innovation? And I, I mean specifically the, the varying, um, intent and the varying goals, um, between sort of the formal academic world, the traditional academic world and the private world. Um, because, you know, certainly we can think about lots of examples, and I'm sure you have many more than I do, but, it seems like on the academic side there's more and more and more hurdles all the time through some of the major universities um the financial relationship is as I'm sure you know better than me between a given university and a spin-off is also extremely variable across you know this country and and an interesting factor as well how how do you how do you see supporting innovation uh, um you know in the best way possible
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's the million dollar question, literally. Uh, So getting your ideas out there, I think um, we've been taught in the past that there's like two uh, valleys of death. There's the valley of death where you have to have an idea and then a valley of death where you need money to uh, get this thing to pass. There's actually nine valleys of death that you have to pass through before you get to any idea to market. And, and I think unless we are, you know, really adamant about identifying what the problems are about getting into to market, we won't get through them. And one of them is getting through your university. I didn't even put that in the valley of death, but everybody's got an office of technology trans, transfer, which I'll, whether it's called different things in every university, I'll just get that out of the way right away. So that can be a really Hard relationship uh, in some universities. And truthfully, it shouldn't be. There are only 13 schools in all of North America that actually make money from their patents. And you, th- you would think, oh, everyone's making some money. They're not. You know, like they're, they all fall in behind, you know, the top ones are Stanford, Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, Penn, Chicago, and a few others. There's only 13 of them that make money. There's one in Canada. I think Toronto's the only one that's making money, at least they claim it. So everyone else isn't making money. So that relationship that the inventors have with the university isn't working. And the universities haven't realized it yet. Now, we were very fortunate at McGill to negotiate a great deal on all our patents. And it just was a little bit more happenstance, too, because their model is that, like most schools, that they own 30 to 40 percent of your invention, no matter what, whether they fund the patents or not fund the patents, and um, you're stuck with that. You're, you're going into your corporate, giving up 30 to 40 percent of your of your uh, equity right away, and uh, you can renegotiate that because the schools are starting to realize that they're they're in trouble with this model. I mean, if you pay, they're paying for all these patents and not getting anything from it. And the best way to negotiate that deal is just say, okay, we're going to pay for the patents. Uh, what you know, we'll give you we'll give you X, Y percent, you know, three percent, five percent, whatever. And uh, they'll usually take that. And there's other models that are being broached now by McGill for uh, design and patent paying and uh, you know equity value. So I think that's a negotiable thing, but it's some, it's a value of death that nobody talks about. But it's a real problem. And I'm, I'm, for the first fifteen years, I gave up all the money and all the patents, right? And nothing happened with them. But you know, if the university is open negotiation, it helps. But I think if you want to talk about the other valleys of death, besides having an idea and actually getting funding to do it, I think the biggest thing that people don't recognize is that this is, this is a team sport. And if your team isn't pulling in the right direction, then you're not going anywhere. And as a physician. You can't be a sole founder of a corporation unless you're doing an app. It's very rare for a physician to be a sole founder, sole equity holder, and, you know, eventually end up licensing out their product or taking it to market. And you've got to realize that the CEO's job in any device, if you're going to do a device particularly, is getting money full time. And a doctor can't do that. It takes, on the average, 17 years to get an idea to commercialization. That's why you see most physicians have an idea and they sell it to Johnson and Johnson or Biomet or someone, you know, whoever is willing to take it. And you get rid of it and you lose almost all your money, but you get a little bit out of it. I think the first idea that's fine, but if you really want to be an entrepreneur and take something to market, you got to be in it for the long run. And you know, for a type two FDA device, which is what most people are looking at, it's a type two or type three device. It takes about $3 million to get a prototype to to commercialization stage to be in humans. And it takes about $30 million to uh, get it through regulatory. So when I say that your full-time job is raising money, like the CEO's job is raising money full-time or the CFO's job or whoever it is in your company. So you need a bigger company, you need a team. And it's really the major value of depth that people don't recognize is that it's a big team. Have to be on the same page and have to be pulling pulling in the same direction. I've been extremely fortunate that you know we have at mile one we have uh, a little over forty employees now. Everybody seems to be on the same page. The C suite is great, like brilliant people, all working to get this to market. Uh, and uh, we've had we've had a good run at it, but not everyone's so lucky because they want to. All the doctors are a little bit. OCD. They want to hang on to everything and oversee everything. You just got to realize that can't happen as a physician. It's a different game. It's not the same game you've been doing since undergrad where you had to get the highest mark in your class and be the best in your class and do this, the best, and that the best. It's a team game. And I think if people recognize that, then it's a lot easier to do innovation.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's such a different mindset and mentality to kind of go from the traditional academic pursuits that we're all used to, to this very different, agile, uh, entrepreneurial kind of uh, mindset. And in some ways, I'm sure it must be kind of refreshing for you. Uh, I just wanted to piggyback off some of what you were saying about trying to find the right partners and finding, uh, for, for example, funding. You know, Traditionally, what a, a business would do is go out and raise money or venture capital. Does that look different if you're a surgeon particularly with all the concerns about conflict of interest like how do you navigate that whole interaction with traditional industry partners when you're trying to bring something new to market sure that's a, it's a good question industry doesn't care they actually like that you're a surgeon that you're
2: uh that you're in that you can't get out that you have an opinion that matters um but i think what surgeons have that other People don't have is an access to non-diluting, non-diluted funding. So grants, you know, whether it's a CIHR grant or NSERC or DND or DOD, and I hold grants from all those people. I mean, that's money that you bring into the company that doesn't dilute your equity. Um, the other thing is that government support has never been better for innovation. I mean, it, it got hurt a little bit by COVID. Things got slowed down. But almost every province in Canada has an innovation minister and there's money to be uh, had and leveraged. I mean, there's other grants that if you get some money from industry, you can get money from the government or from the funding agencies that'll double your money. And all that's different than venture capital money. Venture capital money, in my mind, if you can push it up as long as you can, it's better because the less risk there is for them the more they're willing to evaluate your company and if they come in at the napkin stage like a very san jose california kind of silicon valley kind of picture where i do i drew this idea on a napkin i sold it for a billion dollars that, that that's not going to work in in medical uh, parlance because there's way more risk so co- venture capitalists will give you more money The farther down the pathway you are, if you've done your due diligence, if you've done all your uh, clinical testing, preclinical testing, and then you come to decide whether you're going to take it to market with a real world company or you're going to sell or license it and whether you need money from venture capital at that point or not. And the other option that a lot of physicians have access to is friends and family. So like it or not, uh, you have contacts usually with people who are willing to invest money in you, who believe in you. And, uh, that's another way to get, uh, fairly good dilution value. You can use other modalities like convertible notes or other ways not to dilute your equity too much. And so if the more equity you have when it comes to the VC stage, the more leverage you have in keeping this idea going. So I think, uh, for the, I think it's not a weakness for physician driven companies and that, Companies like you to be in, to be physicians, and you get access to non diluted funding a little easier than other people.
0: You know, I, I, I'm curious. Did you do you have formal training in in any of this, or is this just you being a smart, hardworking guy navigating your way through this
2: path? I have absolutely no training in this, but I was smart enough to to be associated with some co founders, which are really smart, but. Truthfully, none of them in business. So we have uh, three co-founders for all these companies, um, all the same group. We all work together in the lab on Lower Campus Engineering Lab. The two other gentlemen are engineers, but we're all self-educated in business. But what we did early on was bring on an ex-expert uh, board, uh, our board of directors. So we have two. Uh, well, one former president of J and J, a president of one of the big biomedical companies, and our, pres- our, fi- our finance uh, intellect is uh, from a gentleman who uh, sits on the board of Mitsubishi Bank. And you know, so we have a board of directors that are very knowledgeable in how to get things to market and how to get money, and in and how you know to build value in your company. So we recognize early on. We didn't have it, and we went and got it. And that's part of that team thing, assembling a team to attack the problem. You have to have the right team. You can't do it on your own.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. It makes so much sense uh, You know, when you frame it that way. You've given you know our listeners and, and, and Amir and I uh, sort of a, an indirect look and, and some tangential comments about so much. But if you were to boil it down, is there – is there a you know a series of principles or or a or a concept or a, a mindset that surgeons in general can use or should engage if they want to become more more quote unquote innovative or, or disruptive? Uh, how do they how do they get going? What's that What's that trick to to flip the switch so to speak?
2: Sure, I think if everyone just wrote, read this book by uh, Moore called Crossing the Chasm or Chasm, depending on what continent you're on. But this is a, a book that's been around for 20 years, but it makes the point that if you're going to to bring an idea to, to light and that you're going to start a company, then you don't go after a market that's full of people already. Uh, there's only two ways to make company, money in a company. That's either sell it for cheaper or have something that no one else owns, right? And so you, it's much easier when you're starting, yeah, when you don't know anything about Financial processes and production processes that to have something that no one else has. Cause then if it ends up costing three times what you think it, you, you're going to market it for, there's no one else competing with you. And you, you say, well, that's, that's impossible. There's no market like that. Well, there is. I mean, you mentioned one before. Endovascular uh, procedures didn't exist, bef- you know, 20 years ago. And there's tons of ideas left in medicine that are available, that are disruptive, that can can be innovated, you know. There's telemedicine, telehealth, retail health clinics, personalized medicine, tons of ideas that there's no one in the in the niche, right? Because they didn't they don't recognize that there's a technology there waiting to get in. Um, and so this gentleman Jeffrey Moore, who wrote this book Crossing Chasm, basically compared it to going to war, and that you'd rather land on a beach where there's nobody on the beach, right? And then, you know, you you take your army onto the beach. You don't want to be at D-Day and having everyone firing at you. You want to go on an empty beach and just walk inland and sell your product. And that, I think that is one of the big concepts, you know, for early on that we had, I mean, our trauma device is basically, for muscle uh, monitoring is basically an empty market because the device that was previously available was 30 years old. The sensor in it was 30 years old. It was basically uh, very inaccurate. It had been written up as being inaccurate. And the company that was marketing actually sold it off because it was a medical legal risk. So all of a sudden, while we're bringing this to market, there's nobody in the market. And so we were lucky uh, in some ways, but we had recognized recognize that we were gonna go into this market where it was, there, there was poorly represented. We we're gonna have something no one else had. So So it, it's very difficult for someone a novice like me or my, or my partners to come into a market and sell it for cheaper because we get knocked, you know, we get knocked out of the park by someone from China or India or the U.S. If we're competing and you know coming into a market where there's no one else in it, allowed us to expand and learn. And then you know uh, we, we've discussed this before, Chad. And I, I mean, we're going to expand to abdominal compartment syndrome, out of muscle compartment, head head trauma, etc. And that's typical. You go in, you establish your beachhead, and then you expand as you have a reputation. And that's the way that people should approach what they're doing. Otherwise, if you say, Oh, I want to make a new plate, then you partner with one of the established plate manufacturers. And you say, I want to do this kind of tweak, and and, uh, I'm willing to do the preclinical testing, and we'll do some clinical testing. And what will you give me? Because you can't really negotiate with them and tell them what you want, but they'll give you like a cut on every plate or a percentage, or they'll give you a consulting fee, but you won't own the plate and you won't own the company. Those are two different mindsets and how to get in. But if you're going to start a good way to start is partnering with an established uh, company Somebody who's looking to expand, you might be able to expand their, uh, you know, their niche that they're in currently. They want to expand out of it, and you might be, you might have some idea that could help them, and that that's a good way to start. I think I don't think you should jump in with both feet like we did uh, necessarily, unless you're pretty sure it's going to work.
1: One of the things that's uh, foible of mine is to listen to these entrepreneurship uh, podcasts, and there's one in particular that I really like, which is called The Pitch, where some new founder comes every day and pitches their uh, idea to a group of investors. And it, it's sort of like Shark Tank, but uh, but podcast format. One of the things that I've always been impressed with is how people kind of see these opportunities where I sort of just rolled over and assumed that's how it should always be. Uh, even if I noticed the same pain point, I never really uh, you know, thought that, that that was something that could actually be changed or or that there was an opportunity there. How do you think your innovation work and all the work that you do touches you on a day-to-day basis throughout your day in the operating room or in clinic and throughout your week? Do you think that you bring that mindset sort of to everything that you do or how does it sort of affect the rest of your life? Yep, that's a good question.
2: I think that can actually be taught, um, recognizing, you know, that niche market that is right underneath your nose. And we started at McGill, actually, you know, it's not me. It's a a gentleman called Jake Barlett, who had the original vision. I think it came from a Stanford model, but three universities got together to make a program, which was unheard of, like no university combines to do a program, but we had a business school at Concordia University, uh, an engineering school at Ecological Technology Superior, and the uh, medical school at McGill. And they got together to run a program on innovation. And part of this is that these teams of students made up from these three different schools come in to see what you're doing in the operating room they talk to the nurses and they ask where the where the you know the the uh, dams are in treatment and what they can what could be improved and what and at the end of it uh, there's a a week where these they come and they identify these hundred things that are wrong and they you know the 10 teams will come up with the 10 best ideas and then they'll go into these pitch competitions where they develop that over the period of a few months, right? So I think it can be taught uh, how to do that. I don't think our, our schooling, Chad and my schooling, definitely did not teach us how to do that. I mean, they were busy teaching us how to how to recognize that uh, patients are well or not well, and uh, how to put a, a nail in or how to staple a gut, right? So it not it, it, it's just a different mindset and it can be taught. I think it's just that we're not aware of it and we weren't taught that way. Maybe in closing, Ed,
0: I, I was wondering if you could help us define for, for a sort of intellectually ignorant uh, business folks like myself what some of these terms actually mean and how they integrate into all the things you've talked about. So, in particular, the concept of intellectual content, um, forming, you know, quote unquote, a spin off company, trademarking something, patenting something. Um, How how do those terms, uh, you know, parlay to the real world?
2: Sure. So uh, we we touched on it a little bit. I mean, intellectual content or intellectual property is one of the things that um, you need protected in some ways. I mean, not necessarily, but you need protected in order to uh, drive a commercial entity. In that, uh, when you go to get money, one of the first things the venture capitalists ask you is, "Do you have a patent on that?" And that's how you protect your idea, right? Or else someone else, and it's just then it's just a race to equity. In that, everyone's got it. You, you're not. You're not special. So you want to make these barriers to entry. For any of your competitors coming behind you, because truthfully, it's just like publishing. If someone recognizes that you're making a big profit margin on something, there'll be a competitor next week. Right. So trademarking and patenting are two of the ways to do it. trademarking is really or copywriting is really use, used for um, code. It's really hard to patent code. You can patent ideas that are innovative um all you can't get a patent on every idea you you have you have to argue with the patent office sometimes you have to argue with dear office technology transfer you know there's this argument oh well it's already been revealed or it's not self-evident or it's or it is self-evident or it's not self-evident or um it's just clever engineering you just put two things together that someone would to put together a glue eventually anyway it can't be patented so that first step in uh, causing an entry, a barrier to entry is uh, intellectual property or trademarking. And then um, when you come down the pathway, everything you do just makes another uh, entry to bar- a barrier to entry. Sorry, I keep reversing it, it unless you my French. The uh, barrier to entry in that the regulatory. Uh, steps you go through is something that it's really hard to do. So people can't get there. I think the thing overall to realize is that there's really no cookie cutter answer. And I can, I just, I can uh, quote uh, this guy. There's a book by Ben Hor- Horowitz that's called the hard thing about hard things. And basically the book just really come, brings out the point of a bunch of examples that there's no cookie cutter answer to all this. There's no recipe for building a company or, you know, there's no recipe for what he he said, making a series of hit songs or being an NH- NFL quarterback or being president. It's just that that's the hard thing about hard things. There's no real recipe. and You have to deal with things. And what I really like about dealing with this with a bunch of engineers and rather than other people is that, you know, we've had multiple problems which threatened to shut down the entire process along the way. But the engineers just, like, You say, "Okay, let's solve this problem. And all the engineers get together in a group and they go, yeah, let's solve this problem. We just solve it. And that's what I really like about business is you can solve things and enact things that you can't do in my other job, Chad's other job, which is dealing with a government driven uh, healthcare system where you come along and you say, hey, I've got a great idea to solve this problem. They go, oh, that's going to cost money or that's going to make make people not work here or there. Well, we're not doing that even though it'd be better for patients that it's just not the way it works. But if you're driving the company, you can solve problems. And i I love solving problems. That's why I'm a trauma surgeon. People come in with the classic jigsaw of fractures and soft tissue injuries. And we put everything back together. We solve the problem. Right. And uh, that's just like what
1: business is like. And it's, it's really, uh, it's a, it's a good thing to be involved with. Particularly. I felt like this is a, trainees look at people like yourselves and and you'd see their their work and you think man like uh, how how could I ever do something like that or how, how do I how, how do I ever aspire to do something like that if you could go back in time this is sort of a, a spin-off of our, our usual question that we ask uh, our guests at, at the end of our episodes if you could go back and and give yourself advice as a trainee um, now having the experience doing the kind of innovative work that you've done what would that advice be?
2: Yeah, so this is a good question. I actually, I guess I'm getting old. People are asking me this question now. Like, So um, I gave this talk to all the orthopedic residents in Canada a couple of years ago, and I gave this talk in Seattle and a few other places, where it's sort of like, you know, what are your words of wisdom? And, and how have you got where you got, and what can we do, right? And so I think, and the way I've always approached it, and I don't think I, I, I think I would have just driven the timetable faster if I went back and talked to my younger self is that your career is arranged in five-year blocks. It has been forever. You did undergrad. You did a four or five-year degree in undergrad. You did a four or five-year medical school degree. You did a four or five or six or eight-year, like me, residency and fellowship group. And then you come out and practice. Your first five years are actually learning how to operate. Like, you think you learned it how to do it in residency? No. You spend your first five years with your head down just learning how to operate. Make sure you don't make any mistakes. And then the next five years is really you could involve a little bit more administration, but you're still really perfecting your clinical acumen. And then after that, then, then you, then you're in your thirties, right? Then you're going to start, what what do you do else? You know, because things get a little easier clinically, then you start trying to improve the processes around you. You know, you join administrative committees, you have input into things because you've seen things before. So people ask your opinion, but then you get to this point, where I was five years ago, where it's like, yeah, well, I've done that, and you know, what, what now? And you know, I, I had like a life-changing epiphany, I guess. But I mean, I, to me, it was always just going to take care of my kids. But then I, I said, well, I'm going to do something else intellectually. And I'd always done research, and but I said, okay, I'm tired of this. Not all these ideas going nowhere. I'm getting more and more patents. They're just sitting on a shelf somewhere one of these patents I'm going to take and we're going to make a company out of it. And then, and that was it, you know, and I think I would have done that a little earlier if I had, had someone to go back. But I think the thing to tell the people younger in their career is just, you can break this out in five-year blocks and you know where you're going and uh, just decide where that next five years comes. It's, just, it's not like, Oh, I'm doing my board exams and then I'm retiring. You need a plan for what happens in the middle or you'll become really disillusioned with the whole system and you'll want to be out of it. And you see people quit medicine and for what's called burnout it's it's really lack of planning, uh, you know, either you've planned your career wrong. I mean, there's 248 medical specialties. You might choose the wrong one. There's still time to change it or you've just become bored with what you're doing, but you need to kind of reinvent your life every five years. I think that's the best advice I could give to anyone.
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.